Donald Trump's attorneys have until this evening to respond to a request to limit what he can say about the January 6th case against him. It's Monday, August 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, three people were killed when firefighting helicopters collided while battling wildfires in Southern California. Also, Niger's coup leaders have shut down the country's airspace after rejecting an ultimatum to reinstate the nation's president. And this hour, many women in Iran are continuing to flout mandatory headscarf rules, even though the government's so-called morality police has resumed patrols. I saw them yesterday. They're just like stand behind their vans and waiting for girls. It's like horror movie. In sports, Red Sox lose. Cloudy in 70s today with a chance of afternoon showers. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. Former President Donald Trump's legal team is up against a deadline today to respond to the Justice Department's proposal for a protective order in the election interference case. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. The DOJ had requested the protective order after Trump posted a message on social media that appeared to promise revenge on anyone who goes after him. The prosecutors also argued that Trump has a habit of speaking publicly about the details of the various legal proceedings that he's facing. Those include a barrage of criminal charges in New York City, Florida, and Washington, D.C. He could also face an indictment in Georgia for his alleged efforts to overturn the state's results of the 2020 presidential election. Barricades have been set up around the Fulton County Courthouse, an indication that an announcement could be made soon. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A former Minneapolis police officer is to be sentenced today in the killing of George Floyd more than three years ago. Tutau was found guilty of aiding and abetting another police officer who knelt on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes. Derek Chauvin and two other former police officers have pleaded guilty and have been sentenced to prison. Floyd's death sparked demonstrations for racial justice around the world. A California woman is suing Southwest Airlines after she says a flight attendant accused the woman, who is white, of trafficking her black daughter. NPR's Juliana Kim reports. According to the lawsuit in October of 2021, Mary McCarthy and her 10-year-old daughter were taking Southwest Airlines to travel to Denver. The suit says when they boarded, a flight attendant grew suspicious that McCarthy may be trafficking the girl and that when the plane landed, two police officers stopped and interrogated McCarthy. The lawsuit filed on Thursday is accusing Southwest of racial discrimination and deeply traumatizing McCarthy's daughter. According to the suit, a similar incident occurred in January of 2021. That time, the suit says, Southwest employees pulled a white man off the plane to question if he was trafficking his black daughter. Southwest declined to comment. Juliana Kim, NPR News. Two firefighting helicopters collided in Southern California last night while fighting a blaze in Riverside County. Cal Fire official David Fulcher says three people died. The first helicopter was able to land safely nearby. Unfortunately, the second helicopter crashed and tragically all three members perished, uh, which included one Cal Fire division chief, one Cal Fire fire captain, and one contract pilot. No one else was hurt. This is NPR News from Washington.
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has until Thursday to act on the $56 billion state budget. The plan was passed by the legislature last week. It does not include a key tax relief measure proposed by Healey. Senate President Karen Spilka told WCVBs on the record yesterday that the legislature is taking up tax relief separately. She says the Senate wants to include breaks for seniors, low-income families, and home buyers. We are working towards a, a more competitive, affordable, inclusive, and equitable commonwealth. We have focused on tax relief for low income and middle income. We believe that we need to grow the middle class. The House and Senate passed their own versions of tax relief packages earlier this year. A final plan is still stuck in closed-door negotiation sessions between the two chambers. There's a new effort to ban the use of indigenous imagery at schools in Massachusetts. A new bill would ban public schools from using a mascot associated with Native Americans. Data obtained by MassLive shows 23 schools in the state use Native American imagery. Similar bills have been proposed in the past. It's unclear if the House and Senate support the measure. The Harvard community is reflecting on the passing of a giant in the legal community. Harvard law professor Charles Ogletree died last Friday at the age of 70. He'd been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease in 2016. Ogletree represented several prominent clients during his career. That includes Anita Hill when she accused Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment while he was being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. WBUR's Amy Sokolow reports on how one of Ogletree's colleagues is remembering him. Guy Oriel Charles holds the professorship Harvard Law established to honor Ogletree. Charles says Ogletree was a brilliant thinker and respected for his studies on racial equity and criminal justice. But Charles says Ogletree's impact on people will be part of his legacy. So he did not care about your station. He did not care about who you were. He was someone who was willing to reach out to whomever, no matter where you found yourself. And he had such an impact on people. Ogletree's family says a funeral service will be planned in the coming weeks. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. The Red Sox ended their weekend by getting swept by the Blue Jays. The team lost their final home game against Toronto 13-1. The Sox will host the Kansas City Royals tonight. That game starts just after 7. Cloudy with a chance of afternoon showers today. We'll have high temperatures in the upper 70s. Overnight showers and thunderstorms are likely. It'll cool down to the upper 60s. Tomorrow may start with patchy fog and showers and thunderstorms. Storms are possible throughout the day. We'll have highs in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Former President Donald Trump's lawyers have until 5 p.m. today to respond to a request from prosecutors. Yeah, the prosecutors want a protective order. They have to share evidence with the defendant as he prepares for a conspiracy trial for trying to overturn his defeat in the 2020 election. What they don't want is Trump spreading sensitive information in speeches or on social media. Franco Ordonez covers Trump and the White House and has been covering all of this. Hi, Franco. Hey, Sarah. So first, what does a protective order mean in this case? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like what Steve said. I mean, the order specifically seeks to stop Trump from sharing protected info and his legal team. We're talking about things like grand jury testimony, info about witnesses. And how is Trump's team responding to all of this? Well, I mean, the two sides were trading legal barbs over the weekend, and it's pretty common in criminal cases to keep sensitive information under wraps. But Trump's attorney, John Lauro, said on CNN that they will fight the order. The press and the American people in a campaign season have a right to know what the evidence is in this case, provided that this evidence is not protected otherwise. Sarah, though, prosecutors do have a lot of concerns. I mean, they say Trump has already made public statements about judges and attorneys in the case, and they worry that sharing more info could have a, quote, chilling effect on witnesses or impact justice being carried out in the case fairly. So they're trying to keep Trump quiet. You know, in making this request, prosecutors have noted a truth social post that Trump shared on Friday where he said, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Franco, how does that play into all this. I mean, it shows that Trump is not afraid to attack his opponents. He's got a huge megaphone and he has no hesitation of using it. And it's tricky for prosecutors. And it shows how extraordinary this case is. Considering the highly sensitive nature of what's at stake, prosecutors are worried. And there really is so much unpredictability. And we should remember that the whole classified documents case, the other case, is based on alleged indiscretion of national secrets. Now, one of the key figures, and I think one of the really interesting figures in all of this, of course, is former Vice President Mike Pence, who, as we know, is also running for president. What's he been saying about this case? Yeah, a number of the Republican candidates have been careful about not wanting to alienate Trump's base. But on this issue, January 6th, Pence has been talking tough and casting himself as defending the Constitution. Here he is on CBS's Face the Nation. Our Constitution is more important than any one man. And our country's more important than any one man's career. And, you know, I'm running because uh, not just I kept faith with the Constitution every day for those four years, but also because this country's in a lot of trouble. You know, at the same time, though, he's also claiming that the Justice Department is politicized. You know, Pence has yet to qualify for the upcoming Republican debate. So he really needs to make some bold moves if he wants to get up on that stage. So that might be some of this. Right. And we're expecting a more formal response from Trump's legal team today. Do we expect them to drag this out? I mean, the goal for Trump's team from the start has been delay, delay, delay. And they do want to stretch this out as long as possible possible, possibly until after the 2024 election. But the special counsel, Jack Smith, wants a trial as soon as possible. I really expect to see this kind of push and pull over the pace of the case to be really a centerpiece of this going forward. That's Franco Ordonez, who covers Trump and the White House. Thanks so much, Franco. Thank you, Sarah. The leaders of a coup in Niger closed that country's airspace. That is a sign they're not going to obey a demand by neighboring nations to free the country's president and restore him to power. Other West African nations had been threatening military action. 
Ambassador J. Peter Fahm is on the line. He's a former U.S. Special Envoy for the Sahel region of Africa and is now at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program, sir. Good morning. What did you think about when you heard that the coup leaders had ignored and defied this demand? I wasn't surprised. The the ultimatum to free, detained, elected President Mohamed Bazoum and restore constitutional order, I thought the deadline was, one, too long. It gave the coup leaders time to entrench themselves militarily, whip up popular support in their favor. And then on the other hand, I th- the, the credibility of the threat was always a question because ECOWAS, the regional bloc, although it has countries that are well armed, has not had a history of great successes and joint operations, certainly not ones that might be opposed. Uh, peacekeeping missions are one thing, uh, invasions of other countries. Ambassador, we may have lost you there. We will uh, see if we're able to get you back. But you were just saying that you did not think that this uh, this was a very credible threat made by the, made by the uh, ECOWAS nations. Are you back with us, Ambassador? I, I am. There we go. Great. Uh, I was thinking just about the logistics of this. Even if you are Nigeria, a big country with a big army, moving a large number of troops to some other country to seize it is it's not a small lift for most countries in the world. No, it isn't. It is a complex military operation. And although the chiefs of defense of the various West African countries that were opposed to the coup did meet last week, it's not something you can plan on the fly. I think they were counting on the threat causing divisions that were pre-existing even before the coup. This was a coup launched by a a small minority within the Nigerian military. So they were hoping those divisions might be exploited, but obviously that hasn't happened, or at least as evidently. Uh, I might also say that there, you know, the threats of other countries supporting the coup leaders, those are even more risible than the uh, the the th- the threat of invasion. Oh, meaning that that other countries aren't they don't have very many resources to make much of a difference, even if they do want to support. Well, them. no, I mean, the, yes, definitely. For example, Burkina Faso, which has been very vocal, uh, it's gone through two coups in recent years, very vocal in its support of the junta in Niger. They they have trouble controlling two thirds of the country. Hmm. Their own country is overrun by. Uh, extremists from aligned with both al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. So getting out of their own country will be a challenge. We've just got a few seconds here. But anyone support. We, we've just got a few seconds here. But how bad is it for the United States that this country that was an ally up until the other day has now cut relations with the United States? It, it, it's really uh, tragic. When the U.S. has invested half a billion dollars in the last decade across three administrations to help build up the Nigerian special forces, it's been very effective, actually, in fighting, lowering violence. The first half of this year saw the least violence in almost half a decade. And over an addition, another probably close to $2 billion in development assistance. So all that is now put into jeopardy by the selfish actions of one or two officers and a minority of the military. I guess we'll find out soon if that U.S. training uh, enables the military leaders to keep in power. Ambassador, thanks so much. Thank you. Ambassador J. Peter Fahm is a former U.S. Special Envoy to the Sahel region of Africa. Libraries in recent years have had to deal with a staffing shortage and controversies over what books should be on their shelves. 
The public library system in Milwaukee decided to use humor and some very popular social media posts to try to get past that trouble. Ian Silver from member station WUWM in Milwaukee reports. In between mindless scrolling on TikTok and Instagram, some videos just stand out. The Milwaukee Public Library's video about manga, those Japanese graphic novels, shows an older woman checking out the books. A message flashes on the screen. You're 78, you can't read manga. Her response, I'm 90. She sticks her tongue out, flips the bird, you know that rude hand gesture. Then she walks away with the book. The masterminds behind the video are Fawn Simpson Fuchs and Evan Shimkowski. The video features Simpson Fuchs's grandmother, Betty Simpson. She has a history of flipping the birds, so we thought it was a natural addition. It was too good. <laughs> Shimkowski says that post garnered more than 8 million views and nearly a million likes on Instagram alone. It resonated with a lot of people, yeah. I feel like, the whole video, yeah. The library's TikTok and Instagram accounts have more than 250,000 followers. One user calls it their favorite non-dog Instagram account. Another, the greatest artistic collective of our time. And Seamson Fuchs and Shimkowski work to apply a Gen Z sensibility to their creations, especially when it comes to historical figures. So in one video, there's Seamson Fuchs portraying the Russian mystic Rasputin with wild hair and a long black beard. She does some spirited dance steps and creeps out a woman who's reading a book. You practiced beforehand, right? The, the day beforehand in your driveway? I did <laughs> With your husband and your daughter. <laughs> and then there's that fake spider used to highlight Stephen King novels. We'll have comments on our videos like, oh, the production value and like their budget must have gone up. It's like, nope. <laughs> sure has <laughs> Someone was on top of a ladder to, yes. <laughs> to make the spider look like it was crawling up a wall. Right. Yeah. It may all seem like fun and games, but Simpson Fuchs and Shimkowski are working to counter controversy surrounding libraries, including the fight over book bans. So in one of the library's posts, the local women's roller derby team, the Brew City Bruisers, skates through the library after hours holding targeted books. A message flashes. Keep your bands off our books. Shimkowski says some posts promote the library's services, while others show how inclusive the library is. You, you come into the library and you just know it's a safe space. You know it's a place where you can ask questions and you won't be judged by those questions. You can read the books that you like to read and you can exist as who you are. The videos have gotten some Milwaukeeans to visit for the first time ever, say library staff. And comments on the videos show they've inspired people elsewhere to visit their own local libraries. Vivian Camille is one of them. The Philadelphia mom follows the Milwaukee Library's social media accounts with her 10-year-old daughter. It brings up conversation between us. You know, like she'll be like, Mom, what book is that? Or like, what are they talking about? And the videos have made Milwaukee a top destination. I would love to just take a trip to Milwaukee, me and my little girl, and just tour that library because, yeah, it's rocking. That's just what Milwaukee's library staff likes to hear. For NPR News, I'm Ayan Silver in Milwaukee. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the FDA has approved the first pill to specifically treat postpartum depression, which affects an estimated 400,000 people a year. It's 719. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? 
why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Index funds let you invest in a broad range of companies. They are hugely popular, but are they getting too powerful? The top four index funds alone, State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, and Fidelity, they control about 25% of all of the stock of every public company. How index funds are shaping the American economy. On point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy with a high near 78 today. There's a good chance of showers after noon. Tonight it falls to a low around 68 and more showers and thunderstorms are likely overnight. Tomorrow another rainy day with showers and thunderstorms likely all day. The high will be near 84. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. WBUR's City Space becomes an ice cream parlor this evening. Come for a Sunday and to meet local ice cream makers. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com slash NPR. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. In the 1963 horror film, The Birds... Waves of seagulls, crows, and sparrows attacked the locals on the northern California coast. I don't know how this started or why, but I know it's here and we'd be crazy to ignore it. To ignore what? The bird war? Yes, the bird war, the bird attack. Play, call it what you like. They're massing out there someplace and they'll be back. You can count on it. Ridiculous. Six decades later, fans of the movie still flock to Bodega Bay and the smaller town of Bodega to find the locations in the Alfred Hitchcock classic. NPR's Chad Campbell reports. Inside the Sonoma Coast Visitor Center, there's a corner devoted to the birds. How you doing? Good, thanks. And on the back patio, overlooking the harbor, five plastic crows perch on a railing. I think we need more of them. People love them. They come out here and they take pictures with them. Mitchell Madavi calls himself a concierge for Bodega Bay, recommending restaurants, hiking trails, or filming locations to the tourists who stop by for information. I'd say it's half and half here to relax, and some people don't even know about the movie. 50% are here for the movie. To test those numbers, I introduced myself to some visitors looking at brochures. Do you guys know anything about the movie? Did you come here for the movie? No. Okay. <laughs> no, no. All right. No. Fair enough. But the second couple? I never thought I'd be here. And suddenly it's like, wait a minute, we're only like 50 miles. Let's go do it. Gary Granada and his wife Linda are visiting from Tampa, Florida, and they are huge fans of the birds. That movie had such an impact at the time. It lingers, I mean, especially people our age. The Granadas are retired and zipping through their bucket list during a long cross-country drive. 
Lindergranadas says being where the film was shot makes their memories even more special. It just brings back that chill, you know, of watching it, but actually reliving it. People are so enthralled by it still. Kathy Bruton lives in the nearby town of Bodega. She moved here from New Jersey about 40 years ago. I didn't know that the buildings up there were related until I lived here. The buildings up there are the gleaming white church and the restored two-story schoolhouse from the film. Both are still very well-preserved attractions here in Bodega. The two towns are separated by a 10-minute drive, but local historian Robin Rutterow says Hollywood magic made them appear to be a single location. And that causes all kind of confusion for tourists because they're driving around Bodega Bay looking for the schoolhouse. She says the building dates back to the 1870s when classes were held in the two big rooms on the first floor. It's been a variety of things over the years. I know that it was a restaurant and a bed and breakfast. Now the Potter Schoolhouse is a private residence where the owners tolerate curious fans taking pictures. It's also where this memorable scene was filmed. I want you to go as quietly as possible. Do not make a sound until I tell you to run. Dozens of crows sit on the school's playground equipment as the teacher prepares her students to flee for their lives. Many visitors these days eventually run or walk across Bodega Highway to browse the collectibles at Seagull Gifts. Every morning, owner Rick Madsen drags two mannequins out front. One is dressed in a replica of the outfit worn by the star of the movie, Tippi Hedren. Melanie wears a green skirt and jacket and is taking shelter in an old phone booth. Yeah, she's in there and the birds are attacking and smashing the, the glass. Matson's other mannequin wears an Alfred Hitchcock mask, a scarf, and... Uh, I'm working on a new jacket for the guy. Okay. I got him new pants, but they're skinny pants. They don't look too good. Mm. But it's better than nothing. The store sells knickknacks like Hummel figurines, old magazines and ashtrays. Behind the cash register, a TV screen shows the movie on a continuous loop. Madsen estimates he's seen the birds more than 13,000 times. It's like three times a day for the last 20 years, five days a week, a whole bunch of times. (laughs) He swivels around, turns up the volume, and describes what's happening on the screen. So this is where it all begins. She's almost at the dock. A seagull comes down and clips her in the forehead. Wait for it. Wait. Oh, that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> That's the damnest thing I ever saw. I don't know. It seemed to swoop down at you deliberately. Oh, you're bleeding too. Let's take care of that. It's kind okay. of a corny movie, man. Tell you the truth. Classic film or corny movie? It doesn't really matter here, where the birds has drawn countless visitors to this part of the California coast. Chad Campbell, NPR News, Bodega Bay, California. We are covering the birds and bees today. Silas Bossert is researching the history of bees. He's an assistant professor at Washington State University. We have over 20,000 species of bees. And one of those long-standing questions was where bees originally came from. So a team of scientists has spent years studying that question. They conclude that bees are so old when they emerged, the continents were not in their current positions on the globe. Africa and South America were attached when the first bees buzzed. The climate that made bees originate 120 million years ago is almost the exact same kind of climate that corresponds to the hotspots of bee biodiversity today. 
Dry, hot climates like the places where bees thrive most in the United States, Arizona, California, and New Mexico. Bossard's team has studied hundreds of modern and fossilized bee species. Understanding the past is always important to understand the present. If we understand the kinds of habitats and the time when bees were doing so good that they spread all over the place, we get additional tools to understanding how we can help them today. And this is really important work considering their role in food production. Our breakfast table would look pretty dire without bee pollination. There would be no strawberries, blackberries, blueberries, chocolate. We'd be like hard-pressed for coffee. Yeah, no coffee, that would be an emergency. Bossert says the scientific community still has much more to learn. The fossil record is most well-studied in the Northern Hemisphere. There are a lot of gaps. There are almost certainly a lot of fossils in Africa that we don't know of, or India that we are not really aware of yet. So he looks forward to learning more. It's also actually really fun work. You know, bees are fascinating animals. They like the same habitats that humans often like. Usually, you know, you're standing in front of a patch of flowers and you're looking for insects. You know, it's kind of nicer than some other kind of insect collecting. The researchers say their findings will help them detect the origins of various bee species. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBWAR's Morning Edition. Three dancers are suing Lizzo, alleging sexual harassment and fat shaming. We talked to a public relations expert about what that means for Lizzo's image, which had been centered on body positivity. It's 7.29. Use the WBWAR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Diplomats from dozens of countries, including the U.S. and ones in the European Union, met in Saudi Arabia over the weekend to discuss ways to peacefully end Russia's war in Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kikissis says Russian diplomats did not attend the talks in Jeddah. The Russians have just said, look, these talks that you're holding without us, they're doomed. They're not going to go anywhere. You can't convince the global south to go uh, on the side of Ukraine and, and Western allies. And they're just keeping it at that. They're just like, you go your way and we'll go ours. A judge is giving lawyers for Donald Trump until this afternoon to respond to the Justice Department's effort to impose a protective order against the former president. The DOJ says it's seeking to prevent Trump from disclosing evidence related to the four-count federal indictment against him, alleging Trump tried to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump's defense attorney, John Lauro, says Trump never asked then-Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the results of the election. If they put on Vice President Pence as a witness, I think the case will be dismissed after the government's case. It'll never come to a defense case because the government, the government really has no evidence of criminal intent. Laura was speaking to ABC. Pence has said Trump wanted him to overturn the will of the voters. This is NPR News from Washington. 
This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts State Police must reinstate seven troopers who refused to be vaccinated for COVID-19. An independent arbiter ruled the state violated the troopers' rights. They had asked for religious exemptions from the state's vaccine requirement. The state will need to offer the troopers their jobs back with full retroactive pay back to when they were suspended. Today is the first official day on the job for the new head of the Boston Housing Authority. Former City Councilor Kenzie Bach steps into the role after shadowing the former head of the agency since May. The Boston Globe reports this is the second time Bach will work for the BHA. She was the agency's chief policy staffer before being elected to the City Council in 2019. Dine Out Boston, the area's biannual restaurant week, is underway. For the next two weeks, more than 100 restaurants across Greater Boston will offer discounted specials. Helena Jakai is with the city's Tourism Bureau. She says the program has expanded to include restaurants representative of the city's diverse culture. Us getting into 23 neighborhoods is probably the biggest change that I've seen in that we're not just in downtown, but we're getting into neighborhoods and having neighborhood restaurants participate in Dine Out Boston. Jakai says that includes a number of restaurants that have never participated in the event before. Dine Out Boston goes through next week. It's 732. WBUR supporters include Boston Landmarks Orchestra's free concert with Mozart's Symphony No. 35 and Joseph Bologna's Violin Concerto, Saturday, August 12th at 7 at DCR Hatchell. The Red Sox fell at home to the Toronto Blue Jays last night by 12 runs. The loss ended the series in a full sweep. The Sox play at home again tonight, this time against the Kansas City Royals. Overcast with highs in the upper 70s today. Showers are likely this afternoon. It falls to lows in the 60s tonight, and we'll probably see more showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, the rain may continue all day, and we may see a thunderstorm. We'll have highs in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. On a Monday, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. For the first time, the FDA has approved a pill to treat specifically postpartum depression. In the U.S., that condition affects an estimated 400,000 people each year. And for some, it can have very serious consequences. For more on how this new drug might help, I'm joined by Jamil Nagtalone-Ramos. She teaches nursing at Rutgers University. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, first of all, what should we know about this new pill, Zeronolone? 
Sure. Seranolone is a pill taken daily for 14 days. Um, in the studies that were done, benefits were seen as early as three days into treatment. So they've seen rapid um, response to the treatment for this pill, which is very different from the medications that are out there right now, such as serotonin um, SSRIs, serotonin um, reuptake inhibitors, um, that may take one to two months to become effective. Yeah, it's so different from from long-term treatments you often think of for depression. Mm -hmm. I mean, how big of a deal might this be for patients that you work with? Absolutely. So I'm really hopeful for this drug, um, given the studies that have been shown. However, the only um, the one of the things that I'm concerned about is that the trial was completed in 45 days. So I want to know um, long-term effects of this drug, right? So um, postpartum is the first year after having a baby. And so I'm, I'm thinking about after 45 days, what does that look like? Is there relapse or is there continued benefits after 45 days? I think when we talk about postpartum depression, we think sometimes mm. about medical treatments, but also about some of the social context that causes new moms to struggle. Um, I mean, how do you think about sort of the balance between medical treatment versus other types of changes that might support mm -hmm. women during this time? Absolutely. Um, I'm a women's health nurse practitioner, and I approach this with a holistic perspective. So when I go into a patient's room, I actually tell them, listen, anywhere in the hospital, there's one patient. But in here, there's you and a baby. Everyone focuses on the baby. It's cute. It's lovely. <laughs> but you also need help. You also need to recover. You may have had major abdominal surgery from a C-section, and you need to give yourself kindness and grace. I really try to include uh, the patient's partner, family members, or friends that are in the room, and really asking them, how are you going to support this new postpartum patient? So I think there's a lot of factors that are involved with risk for postpartum de depression. So I really try to look at the patient holistically and see what the risk factors are and try to address those. What do we know about the cost of the, this new drug and whether insurance will cover it? Um, I don't think we have that information just yet. And that is also actually um, another one of my concerns. Um, hopefully that this would be, um, the cost will not be a barrier to accessing the drug for patients. We know that one of the risk factors for postpartum depression is having financial constraints. So we have a former, a drug that was approved in 2019 that is available through intravenous therapy. But the cost is twenty to $30,000. So I'm really hoping that this one would be more affordable for our patients. Quickly, how big of a barrier is coverage for women and, and new, new parents? Right. So um, that is definitely something that we are concerned about. Um, sometimes there's changes in insurance coverage in um, the postpartum period. Um, so having something that is um, available to all patients financially mm -hmm. would be great. That's Jamil Nactalon-Ramos, who teaches nursing at Rutgers University. Thank you. Thank you. In Iran, many women have been defying the country's mandatory headscarf rules for the past several months, and they have mostly gotten away with it. Iran suspended patrols by the so-called morality police for a time after a woman died in custody last fall. Even now that patrols have resumed, many women say they will continue disobeying rules requiring the headscarf or hijab. NPR's Arzu Rizvani reports. 
Life without the morality police was a dream for 19-year-old Baran. There was more peace in the streets. I myself wore t-shirts and no scarf and nothing, going out like a boy. And the people getting used to women without hijab. Cases of harassment, detentions, and fines were down. But then, a few weeks ago, came a rude awakening for Baran, who we reached through internet calls to Tehran. I heard this news from Instagram, and I was so surprised. The government had called the force back into action. And in the brief time they've been back, Baran, who gives only her first name for fear she'll end up detained like thousands of others the government has arrested over the last year, has already encountered them numerous times in their signature white vans. I saw them yesterday, and they're just like a stand behind their vans and waiting for girls. It's like horror movie. You know, you cannot recognize it when you have to run. That running and hiding is something Yasemin Chuba monitors closely. She works for a U.S.-based organization called United Free Iran that runs a crowdsourced navigation app called Gershad. Users in Iran share the location of their run-ins with the morality police, alerting others of which streets to avoid. Sightings have shot up in recent days, and Chuba and her team have noticed changes in how the force is operating. For one, they're more discreet. They are back in work with white vans. They don't have morality police logo on them. They also seem to have a more sprawling presence. We have been getting a lot of reports from these cities that we have never had reports from them. And these are the cities who have uh, ethnic minorities of Kurdish people. It was Mahsa Amini, known by her Kurdish name Gina, who died in morality police custody last year that set off months of protests and a violent response by government forces. But even with this police force back in place, many women are still letting their hair down, says Nahid Siamdust, professor of Middle East studies at UT Austin. The facts on the street, you know, speak to women having claimed this piece of freedom for themselves. And I think it's going to be very hard for the Islamic Republic to roll that back. So really what I'm looking at is how's that dynamic going to play itself out between state enforcers and the women on the streets. 19-year-old Baran is certain of how that dynamic will play out for her and her friends. When I ask if she'll tuck her long, curly hair back under a headscarf again, she doesn't hesitate. No, no way. I prefer to die. We are not wearing that hijab because... We are still fighting for Mahsa, Nika, Sarina, and everyone killed by Islamic Republic of Iran. The headscarf has long been a key symbol of Iran's clerical rule. Hardliners keep pressing for it, but on the streets of Iran, its future remains very much in doubt. Arizu Rezvani, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we talked to a former member of Donald Trump's administration about how he might expand the power of the executive branch if he becomes president again. Upper 70s and cloudy today with afternoon showers and thunderstorms likely. Tonight it dips into the 60s and we'll see more showers and thunderstorms overnight. The rain may continue all day tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR.
and Rhodes Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Confidence in the state's economy is rising among local business leaders. That's according to the monthly Massachusetts Business Confidence Index survey. Chris Guerin is with the Associated Industries of Massachusetts, which compiles the report. He says the outlook among members of the business community is generally optimistic. Business confidence is a very good indicator of business intent. So confident employers hire people. Confident employers are willing to go ahead and uh, move forward with expansion plans. Garen says the improved outlook is likely due to an improving economy and easing inflation. A new restaurant will begin serving up comfort food in Alston today. Sloan's is opening on North Harvard Street in the space that was once home to the Jewish deli Our Fathers. Boston.com reports the restaurant is the latest venture of chef Sarah Wade, who won the Food Network's Chopped Gold Medal Games in 2018. It's 744. Today, hip-hop is a global, multi-billion dollar industry, but when it started 50 years ago, it was just young people partying in the Bronx. It was poor urban people kind of making lemonade out of lemons. They, they didn't mean to, to start this cultural phenomenon. I'm Juana Summers. How hip-hop began, on All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Lizzo has been in the news lately in a way that she would rather not be. The artist, who is an advocate for body positivity and self-love, is being sued by three of her dancers who allege sexual, religious, and racial harassment, as well as fat shaming. Lizzo has denied the allegations. Let's talk them through with Molly McPherson, a public relations expert who specializes in the sort of celebrity crisis that Lizzo now faces. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. I guess we should be clear we're operating in an environment where we can't say for sure which of these allegations may be true, but is this suit a special problem for Lizzo because it cuts against her image? Exactly, Steve. What makes Lizzo's case different is the reaction from her fans. This isn't a case of a simple celebrity misbehavior or an offense in the legal realm. It's a case of an artist who is being called out for hypocrisy. Um, And the hypocrisy is what? Lay it out. Well, in this case, Lizzo is a very relatable brand. I mean, her she built the entire brand on body positivity, except accepting differences in people. Her fans bought into this brand. And when people feel that they have been had, they will let their 
artists know that they're not pleased with it. Uh, we should mention that Lizzo has said these are, quote, sensationalized stories, has essentially denied the allegations by, and we'll name them here, Ariana Davis, Crystal Williams, and Noel Rodriguez, who filed a total of nine different accusations against the artist. She said that they are sensationalized stories. Do you find that response to be adequate? I find that response to be 100% predictable. This is a legal case. It's really an employment issue case, what it boils down to. So her team is doubling down on trying to deny all the allegations that happen, which can be risky in a social media realm because now her fans and other people can share their sentiment online and what they're saying is we don't believe you. Are you saying that it would have been a better response to say nothing? It would have been a better response to show some level of accountability or some speck of remorse. Legally, what she may be trying to do here, it's reasonable to assume that they want to settle this case out of court. However, what is happening in the attempt to limit the legal liability, she's almost guaranteeing that she is hurting her reputation and she may not get it back. Oh, you're saying that maybe she should have said, oh, I'm sorry, I, apparently something happened here. Like Some acknowledgement would have been better from a public relations standpoint, even if it wouldn't be from a legal standpoint. Lawyers are allergic to the term, I'm sorry. There's a culpability that comes with it. But the nuance here is if you can show some level of remorse, it's telling the fans that we, I understand what is happening here. I understand that I let you down. And the fans will recognize that. But with a full deniability, it's done. If you're Lizzo, is it possible to argue that even from a public relations standpoint, there's no point in expressing regret or acknowledging responsibility. That's a fair assessment that you can assume that your fans aren't going to accept you. But nowadays, people do relate to celebrities who address a situation with sincerity and they demonstrate a commitment to resolve the issue, all while remaining true to their public persona. Lizzo seems like the person who will be able to do that if she's allowed by her lawyers. Molly McPherson, public relations consultant and crisis manager, thanks so much. Thanks. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, new research shows that being exposed to a variety of smells could help improve learning and memory. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority. Providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Donald Trump's attorneys say they plan to fight a request to limit what he can say about the January 6th case against him. In Niger, coup leaders have shut down the country's airspace after rejecting an ultimatum to reinstate the nation's president. And three people died when two firefighting helicopters collided while battling wildfires in Southern California.
Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Upper 70s today with cloudy skies that may give way to showers this afternoon. Tonight it falls to the upper 60s and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Rain is likely at any point tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. In Pakistan's port city of Karachi, a famous poet is discovered dead, slumped near the unconscious body of his lover. It's 1970, a time when the city is renowned for its wild nightlife and society scandals. The apparent murder triggers a media frenzy, but times change and memories fade. Until now, that is. NPR's Dia Hadid reports. And first to note, this story includes a mention of suicide. Mustafa Zaidi had a winning smile and a way with words. His broody lines were even put to music. He says, The sunlight torments me. There's no shade. Call my beloved. Let her eyes shelter me. Lines like that lured women like Shehnaz Ghul, a socialite renowned for her wide black eyes, rose petal cheeks, and a certain sex appeal. Zadie and Ghul were both married to other people. Both had children. They had a public affair. One man who socialized in the same circles, Imran Aslam, recalled it like this. She was a free spirit and became a muse for him. And so he wrote his poetry around her. And they had an affair. And they probably had this love pact, a suicide pact. A lover's pact. A suicide pact. Decades on from Zaidi's death in 1970, that's what Pakistanis tended to recall, until two writers investigated the story. They're writing a book that's expected to publish next year. They also made one of Pakistan's first true crime podcasts and unearthed details like this. On the morning of October 12, 1970, Shanaz went over to Mustafa's house. They began to talk. There was something else in Mustafa's house. Locked away in the garage were copies of a flyer that Mustafa had designed. And printed on the flyers were photographs of Shanaz, taken while she was in the nude. There was no word for this then. But we now know this as revenge porn. The writers are Sabah Imtiaz and Tuba Masood. And as they scoured newspaper archives, they found Zaidi's death triggered a murder trial. It was breathlessly reported. The main suspect? His lover, Shehnaz Ghul. This is Sabah Imtiaz. We spoke at a cafe in Karachi. The depths that journalists went would rival any paparazzo known to mankind. Reporters chased cop cars so relentlessly that at one point, police disguised an officer in a burqa to throw them off the trail. The media and Pakistan were obsessed with Ghul, portrayed as beautiful, murderous, consumed by lust. Imtiaz says the papers reported details unthinkable in today's conservative Pakistan. How long somebody can last in bed? Somebody's sexual instruments. Love sessions. The co-hosts examine how Zadie's death, reported as a love affair gone bad, hid a more disturbing story. This wasn't just love. 
It was love mixed up with something else. The co-hosts discover that Shahnaz Ghul had ended the affair with Zadie, but he wouldn't let her go. Like when he heard she was about to board a flight to London. This is from the podcast. He managed to intercept her at the door of the plane itself. Ghul pushed past him and boarded the plane. When she returned to Karachi, Zadie stalked her home. He blocked her car when she tried to drive away from him. He threatened suicide. Finally, Ghul paid him a visit. And that's when the podcasters reveal Zadie had printed flyers with Ghul's naked image on it. She may have consented to having her photos taken, but what Zadie wanted to do with the images was revenge porn. Then Zadie died. The police break open the door. He sees Mustafa lying on the bed. Blood is oozing out from his mouth and nose. The buttons of his shirt are all opened up. In the adjacent room, Shanaz is lying on the floor. She opens her eyes, moans, and closes her eyes again. Both had ingested tranquilizers as sedatives. Zadie was holding an old-fashioned telephone receiver in one hand. Who was he trying to call? Did Zadie try to kill Ghul and then kill himself, thinking that she had died? Or did Ghul kill Zadie to free herself from his grip? Was it somebody else seeking to end this affair? Like all good true crime, the podcast illuminates the time and place it happened. Karachi in the 60s, the freewheeling capital of a young Pakistan. Glamorous and cosmopolitan, criminal syndicates and mafias, politicians and their cronies were all emerging. There were bars, strip clubs, cabarets, champagne flowed. A movie called Society Girl tried to capture the zeitgeist. A bleach-blonde woman sleeps with a stranger she dances with at a party. Then she polishes off a bottle of whiskey. The real Karachi of the 60s was wilder. There was a wife-swapping club whose members included industrialists, politicians, police. There were jealousies, fights, divorces. The club unraveled. It echoed what was happening to Karachi to Pakistan. MTR's the co-host says Zaidi's death took place at a very pivotal and strange time for Pakistan. Like a lot of things were changing and about to change. Weeks after Zaidi died, Pakistan's president announced the country's first elections. I have no doubt in my mind. Elections will be held. But elections led to an army campaign in Pakistan's eastern flank, a territory physically apart from the rest of the country. It broke away and became Bangladesh. Years later, the general Zia al-Haq came to power and transformed Pakistan by imposing his own conservative values, like banning alcohol sales and supporting jihadis. Karachi's nightlife withered. Turf wars between strongmen exploded into clashes. Militants joined the fray. From a party capital, Karachi became synonymous with violence. This is Intiaz. The city has changed, the politics have changed, the landscape has changed. But the co-hosts say Karachi's elites today have similar lifestyles to Mustafa Zaidi and Shehnaz Ghul. People are still partying, people are still having affairs, people are still drinking alcohol. The difference now is that the walls have come up. It's all private, hidden, until a scandal or a mysterious death brings the walls back down again. Dia Hadid, NPR News, Karachi. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Cloudy and upper 70s today. Showers this afternoon, then thunderstorms are possible overnight. It'll be in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, a good chance of rain all day. We'll have temperatures in the 80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline. Embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at GoddardHouse.org. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Donald Trump's attorneys must respond today to a request to limit what he can say about the case charging him with trying to overturn the 2020 election. It's Monday, August 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we look at how Trump may reshape the federal government if he wins the race to return to the White House. I will totally obliterate the deep state. We will obliterate the deep state. Also, coup leaders in Niger have defied a deadline to restore the ousted president. And this hour, we visit the coldest spot in New England this summer. It's a large refrigerator that scientists are using to study the elements formed when stars die. Less than a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero, the lowest temperature that can theoretically be reached. And sports Red Sox lose cloudy in 70s today with afternoon showers possible. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Justice Department is asking a judge to issue a protective order against former President Donald Trump. The DOJ says it's seeking to prevent Trump from disclosing evidence related to the four-count indictment against him, stemming from Trump's alleged efforts to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election. NPR's Joe Hernandez reports. In their motion for the order, federal prosecutors pointed to Trump's history of making social media posts about legal matters against him, including a post he made on Truth Social Friday in which he wrote that he'd go after anyone who went after him. Trump's attorney, John Loro, slammed the idea of a protective order in an interview on ABC's This Week. What the Biden administration is trying to do is prevent the press from learning about exculpatory and and helpful information, evidence that the people have a right to know about. Trump's attorneys wanted more time to respond to the Justice Department's proposal, but the judge denied that request. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. The judge ordered the Trump team file an answer by 5 p.m. Eastern Time. A trio of federal voting rights lawsuits is heading to trial today in Galveston, Texas. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports the combined case is the first major trial of its kind since the Supreme Court upheld a key clause of the Voting Rights Act in June. The three lawsuits charge Galveston County with racial discrimination, violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The county is nearly half black and Latino. One of the county's four voting districts used to be made up of a majority of black and Latino residents. 
In 2021, the Republican-led County Commissioner's Court redrew its map to split the non-white population across all four districts so they do not comprise a majority anywhere. And now County Commissioner Stephen Holmes, who is black and a Democrat, is far more likely to lose his re-election bid next year if the map is allowed to stand. Lawyers for the county say the new map was partisan, which the U.S. Supreme Court has allowed, and not racial. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. New guidelines from the Food and Drug Administration take effect today, allowing more gay and bisexual men to donate blood. Nick de la with member station WFAE reports. The previous rules were intended to protect blood recipients from HIV, but they were called discriminatory by many advocates. Under the new rules, only people who've had anal sex with new or multiple partners or take HIV prevention drugs will be asked to wait three months before donating. The agency says it will keep monitoring the safety of the blood supply. Nick de la Canal reporting. Three people were killed when two helicopters collided in Southern California yesterday. They were carrying fire crews fighting a blaze. The crash sparked another fire which has been extinguished. This is NPR News. Officials in southern Italy say about 30 people are still missing after two shipwrecks over the weekend. Dozens of people were rescued. At least two people died. The ships were carrying migrants from northern Africa, attempting to cross the Mediterranean for a better life in Europe. At least 30 people were killed and 80 injured in a train derailment in Pakistan yesterday. NPR's Abdul Sattar reports from Islamabad. The Hazara Express was on its way to Havelia from southern port city of Karachi. When the ill-fated train reached close to Nawabshah, a city in southern Pakistani province of Sin, it derailed. Havelia is a town in Pakistan's northwestern province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. The cause of the derailment has not been determined yet. But the Federal Minister for Railways, Khaja Saad Rafiq, said in a statement that the possibility of sabotage or a mechanical fault could not be ruled out. And an investigation is underway. Abdul Sattar, NPR News, Islamabad. It's not clear what happens next in Niger, where a deadline expired yesterday. West African leaders had given the instigators of last month's coup until yesterday to reinstate the democratically elected president threatening to intervene militarily. Mohamed Bazoum has not been restored to power. The coup leaders say they've closed Niger's airspace and that any attempt to fly over the country will be met with an energetic and immediate response. I'm Nora Rahm, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts's largest teachers' union plans to support a ballot measure to drop the state's MCAS graduation requirement. Currently, high school students must pass the standardized test in order to graduate. Last night, the Massachusetts Teachers Association voted to support the measure. The union tells the Boston Globe it does not want students to receive diplomas based on how they do on the MCAS test. Ballot question organizers need nearly 75,000 signatures before the question can appear on the ballot next year. Families in two Boston neighborhoods are upset that all the city's pools where they live are closed for the whole summer. As WBWAR's Walter Ruthman reports, residents are questioning the city's maintenance plans. All six pools operated by the Boston Centers for Youth and Families in Dorchester and Mattapan are closed this summer for repairs. 
Mary Hamilton remembers taking her kids to the city pools when they were young. She said she doesn't understand why BCYF would close all the facilities in an entire neighborhood at once. That doesn't make sense to me. Why close them all? Leave some open and fix those and then do the others. City data show 10 of the city's 18 pools are closed right now, including pools in Chinatown and West Roxbury. A city spokesperson says the repairs are needed due to, quote, years of deferred maintenance. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The city is plotting a new strategy to stop violence and drug activity in the area known as Mass and Cass. Mayor Wu says the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard has reached a new level of, quote, public safety alarm. Jim Stewart is with a group advocating for safe consumption sites where people can use drugs under medical supervision. He thinks the city is falling short when it comes to providing services. There is something going on here besides drug use. These people are a community. A couple of years ago, these people were spread out over a much wider area. Mayor Wu is expected to announce her new mass and cast strategy soon. An additional 4,500 so-called banned books are now circulating in the state. The NAACP and American Federation of Teachers brought what they call their Freedom Library to the state last week. They distributed banned books at the NAACP convention and other locations in the city. Data obtained by the Boston Herald shows that Massachusetts had the fourth highest number of attempted book bans last year. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. The Red Sox ended their weekend by getting swept by the Blue Jays. They fell in Game 3 of the series 13-1. The Sox remain at home tonight to host the Kansas City Royals. Cloudy with a chance of afternoon showers today. We'll have highs in the upper 70s. Overnight showers and thunderstorms are likely. It'll cool down to the upper 60s. Tomorrow may start with patchy fog and showers and thunderstorms are possible throughout the day. Highs will be in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Diplomatic efforts to reverse a coup in the West African nation of Niger have yet to work. Yeah, the group of West African nations called ECOWAS gave coup leaders a choice. They could release and reinstate their president or face military intervention. Instead, Niger's military vowed to defend themselves from any attack. And now, a country that was a U.S. ally until the other day has cut diplomatic ties with the U.S. and other countries. We're joined now by NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu, who's in Lagos. Hi there. Hi, good morning. So, Emmanuel, the deadline has passed. Are we likely to see a military intervention now? Well, it's possible. You know, and intervention plans, they've been laid out, but it's less and less likely. You know, this ultimatum, it was meant to show Niger that West African leaders wouldn't let this happen, like it had with other coups in the recent past, in the last few years. Um, And it was meant to pressure the junta to make concessions. But it's backed Niger's military leaders into a corner now, and and they've come out swinging. You know, they've cut diplomatic ties with Nigeria, the US, France. They've quickly aligned with military leaders in Mali, Burkina Faso, Guinea. You know, these are three countries in West Africa that have had military takeovers. In Mali and Burkina Faso have actually vowed to come to Niger's defense. These militaries are altogether far smaller than the intervening countries. But, you know, it's raised the stakes that this could spark a regional conflict. 
you know, yesterday, tens of thousands of people showed up at a rally in support of the coup in Niamey, in the capital of Niger. And, and at other protests, we've seen chants against ECOWAS, you know, the bloc of West African countries, Nigeria, and of course, the former colonial ruler, France. And, and you know, these protests, it doesn't reflect how the entire country feels about the coup, but it does show that for some, there is this sense that the country's under siege and, and they're responding to that defiantly. Many countries like the U.S. are clearly desperate for the coup to be reversed. What are the other options on the table to try to release the president and restore the government? Well, there are still some channels of communication and and diplomatic levers to pull. You know, these are ongoing. But what we've seen so far is the junta have responded quite negatively to any actions it views as a threat. You know, a contingent of officials from Nigeria and ECOWAS, they weren't even able to meet the general Abdurrahman Chiani. He's the self-declared leader. And they weren't able to meet President Mohamed Bazoum, who's still being held at his residence. And Nigeria's cut electricity supply to Niger, and that's caused blackouts. And France and other countries have cut aid, and and that aid makes up about 40% of Niger's budget. But there's a fear that these triggers, these actions, they can actually fuel more anger at these foreign countries rather than the military leaders themselves. And, and of course, fuel poverty in Niger, which is one of the world's poorest countries. Now, Niger is just the latest African country to suffer a coup. How does this affect the region and democracy more broadly? You know, Niger is this large country, mainly poor, landlocked between several fragile states like Libya, Mali, Burkina Faso. And overall, Islamist insurgencies in this region are on the rise. It's a desert arid region, you know, where large parts are overwhelmed by terrorist groups, armed groups and the impact of climate change. You know, so it's a really fragile, fraught region. And these crises, they've displaced millions of people, you know, caused some of the worst humanitarian crises in the world. And the US, France and other countries, they've poured in more and more support into the Sahel and recently in particular to Niger over the last decade. You know, Niger has really become one of the last main allies of the West in this region. Um, But the impact of that support is now causing reflection. And the fear is that, that this coup could actually set back the country and this wider region even more. NPR's Emmanuel Akinmutu in Lagos. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. If Donald Trump should return to office, some conservatives are ready. They're preparing ways that he could reshape the federal government. The leading Republican candidate has already embraced one idea, which he phrases this way. I will totally obliterate the deep state. We will obliterate the deep state. And we know who they are. I know exactly who they are. That's Trump speaking at a rally in June, though it could have been from many past speeches. He talks often of the deep state, generally meaning whatever part of the federal government that frustrates him at the moment. Lately, that includes the special counsel who is prosecuting him. Some conservatives have been working to turn that rhetorical talking point into concrete policy. They have long-standing goals to cut back on what they call the administrative state. Russell Vogt served as Trump's budget director and now runs a think tank that is aiming to reshape the government. The notion that career civil servants are just kind of working away expertly and don't have a political agenda is not true. Vogt contends that the permanent employees of federal agencies are not responsive enough to the president's demands. He says the next president could reclassify the status of federal employees so that they would be easier to fire. Should civil servants be personally loyal to the president? 
Civil servants should be oriented to accomplishing the agenda of a president, not the office of the president, not their institutions, the Office of Management Budget or the EPA or Department of Justice. They should be working for the agenda of a president that gets elected by voters. And that is not the case. Now, this is all a little complicated, but it gets to a basic question. Who decides what the government should do in a democracy? We called up an expert on these matters, Jane Manners of Temple University, and she told us the administrative state is real up to a point. People who refer to the administrative state are genuinely referring to independent agencies. Congress created them, and the president usually appoints their leaders, but they have some insulation from politics. We hear about some of these agencies in the news all the time. The FCC, for example, regulates broadcast communications. The FEC oversees election spending. The SEC regulates stock trading. And conservatives who dislike regulation have gradually included other agencies in their definition. It's become kind of flabbier over time. The Supreme Court Chief Justice recently referred to the administrative state in a ruling against the Education Department. The term is often used by those on the right who are criticizing what they see as bloat and inefficiency and wastefulness and intrusiveness in the lives of ordinary Americans through unnecessary regulation, bureaucracy, etc. To its critics, the administrative state grew even larger in the 1970s after scandals drove President Richard Nixon from power. Therefore... I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. The Nixon scandals revealed the abuse of law enforcement and intelligence agencies across multiple administrations of both parties. And this led to changes in both law and custom, calling on each president to keep hands off some agencies. Jane Manners of Temple University says conservatives see that as undemocratic, although she does not. I mean, we have these conversations regularly about the nine justices on the Supreme Court. And yet we still believe strongly in this country that federal judges should have lifetime tenure. The reason we believe that is we believe that this insulation from political influence does contribute to a more fair, more just opinion that draws on the relevant expertise when necessary. Haven't a lot of presidents expressed frustration at their difficulty in moving the bureaucracy in the direction they would like it to go? Yes. This is not isolated to one party. It's a long-term frustration. And yet it's a frustration, its defenders would say, that is essential to make sure that the executive branch has institutional knowledge and that it has career civil servants who are there for reasons other than partisan favor that they have more of a sense of camaraderie and commitment to the role. Now, what Jane Manners just described, the purpose of a civil service, is what Russell Vogt, Trump's former budget director, disapproves. The notion of an independent agency, whether that's a flat-out independent agency like the FCC or an agency that has parts of it that view itself as independent, like the Department of Justice, we're planting a flag and saying we reject that notion completely. You mentioned the Justice Department. Of course, the president already nominates and gives directions, policy directions to whoever may be attorney general. Do you think the president also should be able to direct the outcomes of specific criminal investigations? Well, he certainly should be able to identify his priorities with regard to what the Department of Justice is pursuing in ensuring that the agenda that he ran on can be executed within the Department of Justice. 
All this leads to a bottom line question, which we put to vote. Should the president have the power to order the Justice Department to drop its own indictment of him? Here's how he answered. I think he has the power to expect that when he brings in an administration, that that administration is not weaponized against him. What about the yes-no question? Does President Trump, if he's reelected, have the power to do that? The president has a lot of power to do a lot of things. That doesn't mean that he, exercising from a standpoint of wisdom, does those things. I am trying to interpret, because you haven't said yes or no, it sounds like you're saying that yes, Donald Trump would have that power, although it might be unwise. Is that your answer? I am suggesting that the president has the authority under the Constitution to conduct law enforcement. I am not predicting that a president that is exercising those authorities is going to make unwise decisions and unwise instructions to his appointees to be able to make partisan decisions that the American people who put him into office would find offensive or odious. And I think that is a complicated answer to your question. So we could trust Donald Trump not to do that? Yes, I think you can absolutely trust Donald Trump not to do that. Still, the prospect of Trump ending his prosecution has become part of the conversation. Trump himself has alleged that he faces a purely political prosecution, as he said recently at an event in Iowa. And by the way, if I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me. At that same Iowa event, another Republican candidate, Will Hurd, said Trump has the story wrong. He's not being prosecuted because he's running. It's the other way around. Donald Trump is running to stay out of prison. And if we elect... Some of the audience booed, but even some of Trump's Republican rivals have promised that if they are elected, they'd keep him out of prison too. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, NPR's Living Better series investigates whether the many products that say they boost our fiber intake really work and are worth it. It's 820. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Index funds let you invest in a broad range of companies. They are hugely popular, but are they getting too powerful? The top four index funds alone, State Street, Vanguard, BlackRock, and Fidelity, they control about 25% of all of the stock of every public company. How index funds are shaping the American economy. On point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy with a high near 78 today. There's a good chance of showers after noon. Tonight it falls to a low around 68 and more showers and thunderstorms are likely overnight. Tomorrow another rainy day with showers and thunderstorms likely all day. The high will be near 84. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. Coming up next on 90.9 WBUR, a new study shows being exposed to different smells could help improve learning and memory. We'll look at why that is just ahead. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. 
From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Okay, if you can, stop what you're doing, breathe in through your nose. What do you smell? Well, if you're lucky, it's morning coffee. But for a lot of us, the answer might be not all that much. Researchers say many in the U.S. are deprived of smells, that we've come to expect an odorless world. And a new study suggests our learning and memory might be well-served if we were exposed to more smells as we age. NPR's Ping Huang reports. Michael Leon is a neurobiologist. He's a professor emeritus at University of California, Irvine. And as an experiment, he gave a few dozen healthy older adults diffusers, machines that release smells in a room, and also different essential oils to go in them. So uh, rose, orange, eucalyptus, lemon, peppermint, rosemary, and lavender. Each night, a different scent would waft through the bedroom, and over the course of six months, there was a 226% improvement on a learning and memory test among those who slept with a strong nightly scent compared with those that diffused distilled water every night. Leon says the scents were stimulating the memory centers of people's brains as they slept. The results were published recently in the journal Frontiers in Neuroscience. Now, the study was small, just 43 people, and their data collection got interrupted by the pandemic. Still, Leon says it jibes with the understanding of how smell is connected to learning and memory. Most people who live in our affluent society are actually deprived chronically of the odor stimulation that their brain needs. This living in a scent-free world, combined with the wear and tear that comes with aging, means that around the time people turn 60, their sense of smell and memory starts declining together. In a previous study, researchers in Korea found that twice-daily intensive smell therapy can help improve memory and attention in those with moderate dementia. Leon's study was testing more passive ways to stimulate the brain. The idea is that it will keep the memory centers of your brain in good condition throughout life and perhaps prevent memory loss older in life. Leon says there's definitely more research to be done, but he thinks there's enough evidence to try this at home. He thinks almost everyone can get more smells into their lives. Ping Huang, NPR News. Okay, many grocery stores offer so-called prebiotic drinks. These cans of fizzy soda are supposed to boost your fiber intake and gut health. That's what the can says. So do they work? NPR's Maria Godoy reports. I have a confession to make. I'm kind of obsessed with fiber. And I'm not alone. Hannah Holster calls herself a fiber nerd. There's been so much research that have shown that if you consume more fiber, you are healthier. Holscher is an associate professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois. She says fiber does way more than just help keep us more regular. It helps control blood sugar levels and lower cholesterol and inflammation. One review of nearly 200 studies and dozens of clinical trials found high fiber diets were linked to a lower risk of obesity, 
type 2 diabetes, and many other health concerns. They looked at all-cause mortality as well as cardiovascular disease, cancer, just a range of health issues that a lot of Americans face and found consistently that individuals that consume more fiber had better health outcomes. Now, one big reason why fiber is so important to good health is that it can feed the diverse community of microorganisms that live in our guts. Fibers that do this are known as prebiotics. Justin Sonnenberg is a professor of microbiology and immunology at Stanford University. He says these gut microbes play a critical role in influencing health throughout our bodies. There's just this huge range of things, allergies, asthma, anything having to do with the immune system, metabolism, cardiovascular health. Basically, there's no part of our biology that goes untouched by our gut microbes. Sonnenberg says when you eat lots of plant-based fiber, you keep your gut microbes happy, plentiful, and diverse, which is important because different microbes do different things to help keep you healthy. If you're not eating a high-fiber diet, your gut microbes are actually kind of starving. And when they're starving, they actually look for other things to eat. And one of those other things that they eat is actually the lining of your gut. In other words, if you don't feed your gut microbes enough fiber, they might start to eat you. Right, exactly. Sonnenberg says he and pretty much everyone else that studies the gut microbiome are fiber fanatics. He says one time at a gathering of researchers... The people that were in charge of the dining hall came up to us and said, what group is this that's here this week? We can't keep the salad bar stocked. And the reason, <laughs> the reason is that everybody that studies the gut microbiome is obsessed with eating uh, dietary fiber, plant-based fiber. But they're definitely in the minority. Less than 10% of Americans eat the recommended amount of daily fiber, which is 14 grams for every 1,000 calories we consume. But awareness is growing. Gut health is one of the most popular hashtags on TikTok and a wellness buzzword these days. And food companies are cashing in with a slew of products that contain prebiotic fibers, like those prebiotic carbonated beverages, Olipop, Poppy, Vive Organic. But are these products actually good for your gut? The intuition there, I think, by the field is that that's probably better than nothing. But Sonnenberg says it's not clear that prebiotic fibers added to processed food and drinks have all the benefits that come with eating a variety of foods that are naturally high in fiber. Hannah Holcher of the University of Illinois agrees the best bet is to focus on diet. One of the simple messages we like to tell people is to eat more fiber, you know, to eat the rainbow. That means eating lots of different fruits and vegetables, as well as whole grains and nuts. Think beans, oats, sweet potatoes, pumpkin and chia seeds, pears, berries, and avocados, apples and onions. Not only are these foods a good source of fiber, they also contain other nutrients that promote good health. Maria Godoy, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. I have a gut feeling that this is NPR News. 
Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. We visit the coldest spot in New England this summer. It's at the University of New Hampshire, where scientists are trying to learn the secrets of the universe. It's 8.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Justice Department is asking a federal judge to impose a protective order against former President Donald Trump. The DOJ says it wants to prevent Trump from disclosing evidence in the case involving his alleged efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. NPR's Dave Mistich says Trump's lawyers have until this afternoon to respond to the request by federal prosecutors. In requesting the protective order, prosecutors cited Trump's social media post Friday in which he wrote, quote, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Attorneys for the former president asked for an extension to respond to prosecutors' request, but Chuckin denied that effort. Speaking at a South Carolina GOP dinner, Trump continued to take aim at the special prosecutor overseeing the case. Deranged Jack Smith. He's a deranged human being. You take a look at that face, you say, that guy is a sick man. There's something wrong with him. Trump was arraigned and pleaded not guilty last week on four counts, including conspiracy to defraud the government. Dave Mistich, NPR News. Authorities in Southern California say it was a mid-air collision involving two helicopters that left three people dead yesterday northwest of Palm Springs. One helicopter landed safely, the other went down, killing the pilot and two members of Cal Fire. At the time, the aircraft was working a brush fire in Riverside County. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Members of the state's congressional delegation will be in Lowell today to celebrate new funding to fix the city's bridges. More than $21 million will help repair four bridges in the Mill City. Those funds come from the recently passed bipartisan infrastructure law. More than $69 million is going to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to this year's Pan Mass Challenge, thousands of cyclists rode in the annual weekend bike-a-thon. Zoe Epstein of Belmont biked from Wellesley to Provincetown over two days. She rode for nine-year-old cancer patient Ellie, whose leukemia is in remission. She has so much energy, such a big, bright smile. And she really is just an inspiration to our team, Um, you know, to be able to ride in her honor and for her. The PMC says it has raised $900 million for Dana-Farber since it started in 1980. The woman known as Boston's First Lady of Song has died. May Arnett earned the title as a mainstay of Greater Boston nightclubs for more than two decades. The Boston Globe reports throughout her career, Arnett shared the stage with jazz royalty like Miles Davis and Duke Ellington. She died at her Dorchester home last month at the age of 91. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. It was another tough loss for the Red Sox last night. They were defeated by Toronto 13-1. The Sox will host Kansas City tonight. That game starts just after 7. Overcast with highs in the upper 70s today. Showers are likely this afternoon. It falls to lows in the 60s tonight and we'll probably see more showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, the rain is, we have a chance of rain all day and we may see a thunderstorm. We'll have highs in the mid 80s. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Colombia has begun a ceasefire with a rebel group called the ELN. This is an effort to end an insurgency that has lasted for generations. Years ago, Colombia made a peace deal with a different rebel group, but fighting with the ELN and others continued up to now. Elizabeth Dickinson of the International Crisis Group focuses on Colombia. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, under this ceasefire agreement, what is each side supposed to do? Well, so the goal of this agreement is really to work towards de-escalation. Um, conflict continues to affect the daily lives of millions of Colombians who live in fear, fear that their child will be recruited, fear um, of targeted assassination, fear that they'll somehow get on the wrong side of one of these of, of this armed group and face the consequences of that. So this ceasefire is really to create space, first of all, for negotiation between this group, the National Liberation Army, ELN, and the government, and second, to work towards a humanitarian de-escalation. And I think this is the first of many steps that I hope that we can now work towards. This ceasefire particularly targets clashes between the ELN and the state forces, so the military, the police. And I think a next step would really be to work towards an agreement that specifically lays out um, what needs to stop happening in terms of abuses toward the civilian population. Well, that's interesting you mentioned the civilian population because that is my image of the various insurgencies in Colombia over the years. You have these rebel groups. They may hide in the jungles. They may even hide in the cities and periodically they strike out at different targets in, in urban areas and elsewhere or even raid a village somewhere. Is that the kind of thing that they want to stop here? Well, that's exactly right. And I think it's key to understand that since this previous peace agreement in 2016 with the FARC, the conflict in Colombia has grown quite a bit more chaotic. There are more groups. Many of them are smaller with localized control. And frankly, many of them are not in uniform. So the civilian population often goes about their daily life not knowing whether their neighbor, the person they're interacting with, um, you know, at the store on their farm, is informing to the group, is a member of the group. And this creates just sort of a generalized fear that has been really debilitating in terms of the social cohesion of, of the very society of Colombia. You know, the ELN is a communist insurgency. And so their work in the, the population has been a huge part of, of their ideology. And I think disarticulating that violence from daily life in Colombia is really the end goal. And this is this ceasefire is the first of many steps that will be needed to do that. Is it truly an ideological group that favors uh, communism, or at this point is it more of uh, just an armed group that fights to fight? You know, the ELN maintains a significant ideology, and that's something that makes it really significant that there have been advances in the negotiation with this group, because in many ways it really is the last of the ideological insurgencies in Colombia, a conflict that's been going on for half of a century. And so it would mark not only a symbolic, but really a, a concrete success in terms of the dividend of peace that regular people are feeling. If some of that sort of um, politics can be stripped away from the violence that it's been associated with for so long. 
When you talk with people uh, that you know in, in Colombia, we'll mention you're outside of the country right now, do you get a sense of optimism that this ceasefire could really work? You know, we um, we do a lot of work in, in areas where the ELN is present. I spent a lot of time in Arauca, for example, which is along the border with Venezuela. And there, I think, you know, we have no choice but to hope. And not just hope, but force and really ensure that from all aspects of society, also from the military, also from the ELN itself, that this ceasefire is successful. Because there really is no other option out of this conflict except negotiation. And keeping our eye really on that end goal of keeping civilians safe in the context of what has been a long-running conflict. Elizabeth Dickinson of the International Crisis Group, thanks. Thank you. How might the war in Ukraine come to an end? Representatives of about 40 countries met in Saudi Arabia this weekend to talk about that. Those attending included diplomats from the United States and the European Union, as well as India and China, but not Russia, of course. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says he wants the talks to lead to a peace summit this fall. Joining us now to talk about those talks and much more from Kiev is NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Hi, Joanna. Hello, Sarah. So, Joanna, what did Ukraine get out of these talks? So, for the Ukrainians, these talks were about trying to convince countries that are on the fence about this war to be their friends. And we're talking about the countries that Steve mentioned earlier, like India and China, Brazil, South Africa, Mexico, Egypt. Uh, these countries have been careful to stay neutral because they don't want to anger Russia or the Western allies supporting Ukraine. But these fence-sitters all pretty much showed up for this conference in Jeddah this weekend, and they heard President Zelensky's 10-point peace formula, one he's been shopping around the world. This formula includes the withdrawal of all Russian troops from Ukrainian land, the release of all political prisoners and deportees, including children deported to Russia without their families, and for a tribunal to investigate what the Ukrainians say are tens of thousands of alleged Russian war crimes. Joanna, these talks happened without Russia, of course, the country mm -hmm. that invaded Ukraine and has waged war there for 18 months. How can you have any kind of peace settlement without them? Yeah, that is the challenge, isn't it? Uh, Russia maintains that it is open to peace talks, but on its terms, which means that Ukraine must accept, quote, the new reality of its borders. Russia has illegally annexed the Ukrainian land it invaded and currently occupies and claims this land is part of Russia now. Russian President Vladimir Putin believes Ukraine is historically part of Russia's sphere of influence. So it goes without saying that the Kremlin will not support Zelensky's peace plan. And remember, Putin held talks about a week ago with African nations in his own quest to secure friends, just like Ukraine tried to do this weekend with those fence-sitters I mentioned earlier. In a video address to Ukrainians, President Zelensky said, perhaps too optimistically, that these countries may have different perspectives, but are united by one thing. Everyone is united by the idea that international law must be a priority, and that's why Ukraine proposed this peace formula because the international rules-based order violated by Russian aggression must be restored. The problem is not everyone agrees on interpretations of international law or what this rules-based order should look like. And so what happens next? Are we expecting more talks? 
Well, the Ukrainians hope so, that's for sure. They say they're happy with what happened this weekend in Jeddah. And even though nothing concrete came out of this meeting, the hosts, the Saudis, said in their closing statement that it's important to try to build common ground and pave the way for peace. Remember, this meeting was also an opportunity for the Saudis to raise their diplomatic profile internationally, while at the same time trying not to anger Russia. And there are expected to be more meetings just like this one, perhaps as early as this fall. NPR's Joanna Kakissis, thank you so much. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the post-pandemic rebound in international travel and the impact it's having on airlines and airfares. Upper 70s and cloudy today with afternoon showers and thunderstorms likely. Tonight it dips into the 60s and we'll see more showers and thunderstorms overnight. The rain may continue all day tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, Clark University in Worcester plans to build new dorms in a historically protected neighborhood. Documents obtained by the Telegram and Gazette show Clark needs permission from the Worcester Historical Commission to tear down buildings to build the new dorm. If that group grants the school permission, the new building will have over 500 beds. Clark hopes to complete the new dorm by 2026. Legal Seafoods plans to open a new manufacturing facility in Milford. The facility would prepare and store food for distribution to other Legal Seafood restaurants. The company and the town of Milford say plans for the facility are in early stages. It's unclear when it may open. Blue bikes in Massachusetts are free today. The bikes will be free every Monday this month. Blue Cross Blue Shield is sponsoring the initiative to celebrate National Wellness Month. It's 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter, online at nutter.com. And Jay Arts with Be The Change, a public art and social justice movement now open in the Fenway. Get inspired. More at jartsboston.org slash be the change. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This summer has brought record-breaking heat waves around the world, and scientists mostly attribute that to climate change. Other scientists, though, are focused on the cold, including some at the University of New Hampshire. They've created the coldest spot in New England in order to learn more about what happens when stars die. Mara Hoplamazian reports. Fabian Kieslot is an experimental astrophysicist and a professor at the University of New Hampshire. His lab is pretty sleek. There's a big window and a whiteboard with lots of math. It's hot in the lab, and he's dressed for summer in a t-shirt and shorts. But I'm here to see something almost impossibly cold. So what we're looking at here is called a dilution refrigerator, um, a device to cool samples to extremely low temperature. When Kieslet says extremely, he means extremely. The equipment to make it happen looks pretty extreme, too. One side of the room is taken up by a silver rack with a maze of golden plates and coils, not much larger than a water cooler suspended inside. It looks kind of futuristic, 
and kind of old-fashioned, like an elaborate steampunk dollhouse with three floors. The magic, if you will, happens right down here. It's off today so we can see inside, but when it's on, it gets really cold. Colder than the open freezer section at Market Basket, colder than a dip at Rye Beach in February, even colder than the top of Mount Washington. Less than a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero, the lowest temperature that can theoretically be reached. A fraction of a degree above absolute zero. If you need help with the math, that's about negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit. And using that refrigerator, Kieslet can study, well, the basis of everything. What I'm really interested in is studying how the elements that the whole world, the universe, is made of, how they are formed in supernova explosions. That's when a really big star dies. To do that, we need to observe the supernova explosions, and we're using gamma rays to do that. He's trying to do it better than it's ever been done before, with special detectors that can measure the energy of gamma rays really precisely. They have to be super cold to work because they're made out of a material that becomes a superconductor of electricity at very low temperatures. And when a gamma ray hits that detector, the energy of the gamma ray gets converted into heat, heating up that device just a little bit, moving along this transition from superconducting to normal conducting. If that sounds complicated to you, don't worry, it is. But I'm really here to learn what it takes to get to temperatures this cold, absolute zero cold, in the middle of July. Kieslot says the refrigerator uses pretty much the same process our kitchen refrigerators use. It's based on an idea called phase transition. He says you can think of it like lemonade. If you put ice cubes into lemonade, they're not immediately going to melt, nor are they immediately going to freeze the lemonade. But we know they're trying to get at the same temperature. The ice cubes cool the lemonade by melting, transitioning phases, using heat from the lemonade itself. Normal refrigerators use the same process, evaporating a fluid using the heat from the inside of the refrigerator. This is sort of the same idea for Kieslot's golden steampunk machine, but using two types of helium. Helium-4, which is the normal helium that you'll have in your party balloons, and helium-3, which does not occur in nature. Mixed together just right, the two kinds of helium will separate into two phases. The process of transitioning phases uses the heat from inside of the refrigerator. That's how it gets so cold. In order to run, the refrigerator has to be covered with a white can, a vacuum vessel. At these temperatures, everything, every known element on Earth, except for helium, freezes solid. And it's important to keep hands and feet outside of the refrigerator. If you somehow manage to touch it, anything would just freeze, right? Freeze into a solid. Air would freeze into a solid. Kieslot says when the machine is on, it's still room temperature on the outside. You never get to feel how cold it is, and that is probably a good thing. Eventually, Kieslot's goal is to send his gamma ray detectors into space. And that would be pretty cool. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplamazian.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on the situation in Niger after coup leaders there ignored a deadline to reinstate the ousted president and how people in Turkey and Syria are coping six months after the countries were devastated by two huge earthquakes. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their efforts to protect and preserve the natural world for future generations. Today, hip-hop is a global, multi-billion dollar industry, but when it started 50 years ago, it was just young people partying in the Bronx. It was poor urban people kind of making lemonade out of lemons. They they didn't mean to to start this cultural phenomenon. I'm Juana Summers. How hip-hop began on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Ukraine and its allies met with more than 40 countries in Saudi Arabia this weekend to discuss a plan toward peace with little movement. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump have until tonight to respond to a request limiting what he can say about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And lecturers at over 100 universities in the U.K. are refusing to grade work, leaving thousands of students unable to graduate. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Upper 70s today with cloudy skies that may give way to showers this afternoon. Tonight it falls to the upper 60s and there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Rain is likely at any point tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-80s. Right now it's 72 degrees in Boston. Why Hollywood is making a comeback in China and it's not just all about Barbie and Greta. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. And by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. I'm David Brancaccio. First, a key part of inflation calming down has been lower oil prices for consumers trying to run households and inflation fighters at the Fed. This has been welcome news, but not for investors in oil companies. Today, there's news that Saudi Arabia's state-owned firm Aramco became the latest oil company to release quarterly results damaged by low prices. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall Genzer reports. COVID hesitation. Aramco's second quarter net profits were down almost 40 percent from the same time last year. That's not too surprising considering oil prices are much lower this year. The cost of oil soared in 2022 after Russia invaded Ukraine. Other oil companies like British Petroleum, ExxonMobil and Shell also reported lower earnings. But OPEC announced early this summer it was cutting production in an effort to raise prices. So oil prices are expected to rise during the second half of this year. That should boost oil company stock, making investors happy. But lower energy prices have helped drive down overall inflation this year, making consumers' lives easier and helping the Federal Reserve fight inflation. I'm Nancy Marshall Genser. For marketplace. Crude oil is down 1.2 percent this morning, below $82 a barrel. Stocks, S&P and Nasdaq futures are up in the two to 
three-tenths of a percent range. The summer of 2022, last summer, domestic air travel had rebounded as COVID receded, and even though there were crushes at European airports, a key part of that was staff shortages. But here in the summer of 2023, passengers have returned in full force to international flights, especially between the U.S. and Europe. Here's Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman. Last year, consumers' COVID hesitation about getting on a crowded plane, breathing recirculated air, has basically vanished, says Lindsay Roschke at public opinion firm Morning Consult. And with most COVID-related restrictions on Americans entering other countries now gone... The share that say that they're going to travel internationally in the next year is up, about nine points. And it definitely is stealing some share from domestic travel. That's hurting low-cost carriers that fly primarily domestic routes, including JetBlue, Spirit, and Southwest, says analyst Chris Rate at Third Bridge. But the shift is benefiting Delta, American, and United, which have more international routes. Fares hit record levels for this summer from the U.S. to Europe. Rate says those airlines are also catering to better-heeled travelers. The mainline carriers have, for the most part, all reconfigured their cabins to the premium leisure traveler. Those who are a bit more affluent, who are willing to spend, say, an extra $100 for extra legroom on a flight. Airfares overall are down about 8% from a year ago. That's mostly driven by domestic airfares falling. And Rate expects the trend to continue. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, provider of an all-in-one management platform with a suite of fully integrated applications designed to simplify and connect every aspect of business in one software. More at odoo.com. And by Bitwarden. The Bitwarden Password Manager enables quick and easy logins through biometric unlock and password autofill. More at bitwarden.com. And by the Glassdoor app, where professionals share advice and talk about work and life anonymously. Conversations are happening within companies and in thousands of communities on the new Glassdoor app. By this weekend, the Barbie movie cracked $1 billion in global ticket sales. A senior Warner Brothers studio executive is quoted in the New York Times saying, no movie has ever sold this many tickets this quickly. Director and co-writer Greta Gerwig can certainly write her own ticket now. And in the second largest movie market, China, only a few theaters were showing Barbie to start with, but it's becoming a sleeper hit there. Other U.S.-made films are coming back to theaters in China. We're joined now by Marketplace's Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, David. One of the biggest complaints from Hollywood as it tries to account for its declining success in China is that the country restricts the number of films it brings in from overseas. What's the current situation? So yes, the number of Hollywood films have steadily been on the decline since 2018, partly because of the U.S.-China tensions. By some estimates, the first half of 2018, there were some 60-plus imported films, mainly from Hollywood, shown in China. That dropped to 30 or so during the pandemic, but now it's picked up again in the first half of this year to 50. Why do you think business there is picking up on the trajectory that you're seeing? Well, to drive consumption, China's economic recovery has been quite sluggish after three years of the zero COVID policy. Right. So ticket sales are economic activity. And maybe you go out to dinner on the same night that you go out to the movies. I mean, I guess it can be an engine for growth. Definitely. The government wants people to spend right now. And are the Hollywood films filling Chinese theaters? 
Not as much as they used to, and there are a few factors, okay? First, as I've mentioned, there are the U.S.-China tensions that has limited some big movies, like several Marvel films, from being screened. Also, domestic Chinese films, they are improving in terms of production, and also their storylines might cater more to the domestic Chinese audience. Lastly, Chinese moviegoers often tell me that Hollywood movies don't seem to be as good as they used to be. So. Barbie, Greta Gerwig's movie, as we speak, Jennifer, is in top five Chinese box office. The latest Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One is in the top ten. I mean, should I draw from that the conclusion that American-produced movies have turned a corner there? Uh, that's hard to say. Barbie had a slow start in the Chinese box office, but it's steadily climbing up because the storyline just so happens to feed into this ongoing discussion in China about patriarchy, how women are being treated. So through word of mouth, you're seeing more and more people going to the movies. Like last weekend when I was there, groups of people were dressed in pink. Some of them sneaking in champagne or wine bottles. Having said that, yes, Barbie is now in the top five position, but in terms of revenue, it's really lagging very far behind the other top four, which are Chinese films. The other big film here, right, is Oppenheimer. A lot of edgy themes. They're going to let it in there. Yeah, they are. They're going to show it at the end of August. Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Thank you. Thanks, David. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. APM American Public Media. Cloudy and upper 70s today. Showers are likely this afternoon. We may see a thunderstorm. It falls into the 60s tonight, and more showers and thunderstorms are possible overnight. Tomorrow, a good chance of rain all day, and we'll have temperatures in the 80s. On Wednesday, it turns mostly sunny, and we'll have a high in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston, and the BBC is coming up next. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.